Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This wonderful chapter that we've been working our way through, and we're going to begin by reading verses 22 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. And we begin a new section now in John. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Once in a while, and it's not always a favorite thing to do, but once in a while it is incumbent upon the shepherds of the local church to fulfill the duty of Titus 1.9, which says to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Now, it used to be that the shepherds of the local church, that the local church pastor, we had 100% influence on our church because there was no other media to speak of. And while we do have the blessing of technology, which allows you to listen to other uh, amazing preachers, even those who have gone home to the Lord because they left behind their sermons, the other side of that coin is that the local church is also competing with the easily available false teaching that is just everywhere. Now, at this moment, right now, in September of 2018, to my knowledge, there's no one at Grace Bible Church secretly teaching heresy or errant theology. However... Because of the Christian book publishing industry, every local church pastor is in competition. We're in competition with the glitzy marketing of superstar authors who have the supposed latest, greatest secrets of true spirituality. And it is to every pastor's horror when he begins to look in his congregation and see them carrying their Bible and then the latest fad from Christian publishing. And that's a difficulty, that's a problem. And so... In the last number of weeks, we've been issuing kind of a plea here for discernment and for wisdom, particularly in the arena of highly, highly popular books sold by Christian book distributors. And so we've been openly warning concerning the the latest craze, which has been going on for over a decade now, of the book Jesus Calling and Jesus Always, two books by Sarah Young. And she claims in these books that she is literally channeling the voice of Jesus Christ. That she is hearing from God, writing these things down, and then, of course, making tens of millions of dollars on it. Now, the easy thing to do would be to say, stay away. The books make good coasters or good firewood. That's, a good, that's easy to do. You should do that. But what we'd rather do and what we've been doing is making a comparison with the real Jesus calling, the actual voice of Christ. What does he really say? And we've been seeing in John 10 and 11 this, this theme of the voice of Christ and hearing from him. And we found that the Jesus of the Bible is very, very different than the Jesus of Jesus calling. 
Again, by the way, listen to my introductory message on this, and we go into detail with a full explanation of the spiritual dangers of, of Jesus' calling. And so, so far, we've heard from Christ. We've heard from the voice of the only way. We've heard from the voice of the good shepherd. And today, we'd like to hear from the voice of a mighty defender, the voice of a mighty defender that Jesus is the one who gives perfect peace in assurance of salvation, assurance of forgiveness of sin. Now, the Jesus of Jesus calling, Sarah Young's fake Jesus, says this, quote, If I give you permanent peace, independent of my presence, you might fall into the trap of self-sufficiency. She says that on her April 18th entry. Now, let me read it again. If I gave you permanent peace, independent of my presence, you might fall into the trap of self-sufficiency. First of all, the idea of peace outside the presence of Christ is weird, and I don't know why she would even say that. But you have to understand something. When Sarah Young says, my presence, it's always with a capital P, and it's the idea of the emotional feeling that Jesus is right here in my vicinity, that I could reach out and touch him, and that he's maybe right next to me or right in front of me. And in fact, we made evident, we gave evidence that what she's actually doing is demonstrating a new age philosophy of channeling a false spirit. And so when she says my presence, this isn't a reference to salvation from sin. This isn't a reference to the certain promises of God. Her Jesus defines peace as an emotion that you have to seek after every day. As a matter of fact, on the, in the very same page, she says earlier that God's peace has to be gathered every day like the manna of Israel. I actually put that, that down, I wrote that down as the worst Bible interpretation in the history of the world. It is horrible that you have to gather the peace of God like manna. Now, of course, biblical peace doesn't have so much to do with a feeling, although that can be involved. Biblical peace has to do with a right standing. It has to do with a a position. Apparently, Sarah Young's Jesus completely forgot a few things that he had already said. He said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. It's an action right now at this moment. My peace I give to you. An action right now at this moment. It's done. It's finished. You possess it. It's yours. Her Jesus also forgot that the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. He forgot that. Now, this certainly includes the emotion of peace, but it's so much more than that. True Christ-given peace is on certainty. It's based on security. It's based on a, an absolute future that you have. That's what real peace is, that you're a forgiven child of God. And contrary to Sarah Young's Jesus who doles out peace little by little, a little bit at a time, I'd like to look at the Savior who's a mighty defender who gives lavish and extravagant peace in the form of assurance of salvation. That's our greatest peace is assurance that we will persevere, that when you close your eyes for the last time and when you take that last breath and when your heart stops, that the hand of the Savior has promised to grab you will take you by the hand and get you home. That's peace. That's real peace. Now, in our text, we've been looking at a a long sermon that began in chapter 9 and went through chapter 10, verse 21. And now we go in verse 22, several months later. It's wintertime now at the Feast of Dedication. 
The Feast of Dedication isn't a biblical holiday. It's not one prescribed in Scripture, but it was a celebration of the recapture and the rededication of the temple. And just to give you a little history, in 167 B.C., the Syrian, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he invaded Jerusalem, he desecrated the temple, he set up an, a, a pagan altar instead of the altar of God, and, and actually outlawed temple worship, and he outlawed the word of God. You could not possess the law. You could not possess the Bible. Well, eventually, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, he led a revolt in which the Jews recaptured the temple. They overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 164 BC, the people of Jerusalem rededicated the temple. They celebrated this victory for eight days, and it was decreed that every year this annual celebration now take place. The reinstitution of temple worship was celebrated with the lighting of lamps and candles. It, light was a big part of the, the theme of this celebration. And the holiday still celebrated today is known as Hanukkah. And so Jesus is here at Hanukkah time in the winter. And it was a very festive atmosphere. It was very similar to our Christmas time. Very festive time. And he's walking about on the east side of the temple at Solomon's Colonnade, or sometimes called Solomon's Porch or Portico. Now, why would he be there? It was, a, it was a protected area. It was sort of semi-indoors, semi-outdoors. In the colder weather, Solomon's porch was more protected, so that was a good place to teach and to preach. Well, now we find the Jews, and we have to understand that in John's gospel, when he uses the phrase the Jews, that almost always refers to the enemies of Jesus, speaking specifically of the Jewish leaders. They, they cornered him. They confronted him. Verse 24 says, so the Jews gathered around him. It's a word that literally means to encircle someone. It's like kids on a playground, eight kids on one. And so they encircle him and they trap him, literally. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the tone of this question and this demand is very antagonistic. This is not people saying, hey, prove to me that you're the Messiah so that I can worship you. Show me that you are from God so that I can follow after you. This is not what they're looking for. What they're looking for is a clear statement that would give them undeniable reasons to go on the attack, to go after him, to arrest him for blasphemy, and ultimately to be rid of him by murdering him. And so Jesus begins his answer without actually giving an answer. He's not going to play into their trap. He wasn't really in the habit, by the way, of just directly saying, especially when he's with the Jews in public, he didn't ever directly say, I'm the Messiah, it's me. He never said that. Now, in John 4, in the private conversation with the woman at the well, he did say he was Messiah. With the man born blind in John 9, the man humbly asked, who is the Messiah so that I can believe in him? And Jesus said, it's me because you want to believe in me. Later in his ministry, he was more and more direct with his own disciples, and he confirmed their understanding of his identity. When he asked them in Matthew 16 who they thought he was, and Peter answered for all the disciples, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in verse 20 of Matthew 16, Jesus strictly ordered them, do not tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone. Now, why is this? Well, in the first century Israel, the term Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, had very political and even military overtones and implications. 
that the Messiah was, according to Jewish tradition, not according to Scripture, but according to Jewish tradition, was going to overthrow Rome. And so Jesus was very careful to not allow himself to be set up as some sort of military leader. That wasn't his point. But the way he used, all through John and all through the Gospels, the way he used Old Testament references to himself, the way his discussions went about his relationship to the Heavenly Father, and of course his demonstrated miracles and and the wisdom of his preaching, they all clearly pointed to his identity. And the Jews know that Jesus has been indirect, and so they're saying, tell us plainly, just say the words, say, I am the Messiah. He gives them an indirect answer again. He essentially says, I already did tell you, and you didn't believe. Now, in the public Jewish context, he hasn't been explicit. But what has he already said, even just in the Gospel of John? He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am not of this world. He said, before Abraham was, I am. These are clear references to being an eternal God. And in verse 26... Jesus once again returns to the sheep and shepherd metaphor, and he declares to them that they they have heard who he is, but they refuse to believe because they don't belong to him. They are not his sheep. Now, I want you to notice something. They are not his sheep. They are not the elect, as we saw in the previous passage, and yet Jesus makes them completely responsible for not believing. They are totally culpable for their lack of belief. They don't want to believe. They don't want to love Christ. They don't want to follow Christ. Listen, these are not men on the cusp, right on the verge of genuine faith that Jesus is turning away. These are men who hate Christ and have no desire and no inkling to walk with him. If I can put it this way, there will be zero people in hell begging to go to heaven because they would rather suffer the eternal wrath of God than be anywhere near God. These are like the people of earth during the Great Tribulation who are unbelievers, and yet they have come to believe that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is coming to judge the world. And so do they believe because of that? Not according to Revelation 6. Revelation 6, 15 through 17 records that they would rather have the mountains and the rocks fall on them They want to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb of God, but it is never an option for them to call upon him for mercy. And by the way, in case you think that's cruel, the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but they won't do it. They won't. The category of somebody who wishes to be saved, but God will not save, that category does not exist. It does not exist. But here as Jesus is sharply rebuking these false Jewish leaders for their unbelief, he gives them facts about himself. He gives them facts about God the Father, which for them made them, in verse 31, attempt yet again to murder Jesus. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And this is the irony. The the truths that he has said in these verses that we've just looked at, they made the unbelievers so angry with Jesus that they would kill him over it. And for us, for his sheep, we look at these truths and they're thrilling. They're amazing to us. For those who know Christ, this is rich and encouraging information that that Christ is a mighty defender of his sheep. And for those who have repented of their sin and come to saving faith in Christ, believing him to be fully God, fully man, and fully the only way to salvation, 
He's giving great assurance that you will be preserved in salvation. You will make it all the way to glory. You will be spiritually fit and safe for all of eternity. And so Jesus is going to give assurances. He's going to give declarations about the security of your salvation, the permanence of your redemption. And so I'd like to just identify those assurances with some key words. The first assurance we'll just call skills. Skills. Jesus also told these leaders in verse 35, 25, rather, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, the Jesus that the world believes in is just a glorified, nice guy who walked around sprinkling compassion dust on everyone. He's pictured like a Mother Teresa-like figure who's about social justice and spreading kindness, and really that the greatest thing Jesus ever did was to produce the little bracelets that, that say, what would Jesus do? And that that's what he's all about, is stopping for a moment to think about moral decisions, that somehow that's who Jesus is. That is a false and a degrading picture of Jesus Christ. He came as the Messiah of God, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, the representative of God to do the works of God. He wasn't just a nice guy. Mother Teresa was a nice person, but she had no skills. Jesus is a nice person who has substantial skills. They're skills that prove his eternality, that prove his deity, that prove his power. As a matter of fact, this is what the whole Gospel of John is all about. It's all about showing through the signs that Jesus gave that he is eternal, that he is God. He changed water into wine in John 2. He healed an official son in John 4. He healed a paralyzed man in John 5. He fed 5,000 men and their wives and children in John 6. He walked on water in John 6. He healed the man born blind just previously in John 9. And in the next chapter, he's going to perform his grand finale. He's going to raise the dead. Now, these alone should have been enough. In fact, the man born blind himself, he said it was obvious Jesus was from heaven, from God. He said in John 9, 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And we've said before that the Greek for that is duh. That makes sense. But the other gospels record even more detail about not just the miracles of Christ, but about the preaching of Jesus. Listen to what people thought about his preaching. Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 records, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Matthew 13.54, coming to his hometown, he taught in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Matthew twenty two thirty three. when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Mark eleven eighteen. the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. What was so astonishing? The best and the brightest rabbis of Jesus' day, they demonstrated their knowledge by quoting each other. Jesus never quoted other rabbis. He simply taught the scripture, not as one who had learned it, but as one who wrote it. He had the ultimate authority. They were astonished because of his authority, because of the outside knowledge with which he spoke. He said things like, you have heard that it was said in the scriptures, but I say to you, when Jesus Christ gives commentary on scripture, it becomes scripture. 
becomes inspired commentary. He spoke truth with an uncanny knowledge of the scriptures. And so the man, Jesus Christ, upon whom you've rested all your hopes, upon whom you've placed your trust for that moment when your body quits working, upon whom you have literally bet your entire eternal destiny, he's not just a really nice guy. He is the Messiah who has demonstrated skills as the only one able to save you. As a matter of fact, the gospel of John itself is encouragement to you. Because listen to this. Just like the water changed into wine, he changed your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Just like the healing of the official son, he healed you from the sickness of sin. Just like the paralyzed man, he healed you of your inability to move toward God. Just like the feeding of the 5,000 men, he gave you spiritual bread to eat, the bread of life, and to receive your soul to life. Like the time Jesus walked on water in the midst of a storm, and he came to his disciples who were trapped on the sea, and he said, It is I, do not be afraid. And he miraculously brought them instantly to the shore. He will instantly take you home to safety. And like the healing of a man born blind, he's already opened your spiritual eyes to be able to see him, to believe in him. And like he will raise Lazarus from the dead, he awakened you from the deadness of your trespasses and sins. The Gospel of John is all about encouraging you that the Messiah has skills. Everything Jesus has been doing has been proving that he has what it takes to keep you spiritually safe. Listen, there are certain streets in Bakersfield that I'm scared to cross. How about crossing eternity? You need someone holding your hand who can make it. He has skills. There's a second assurance, sensitivity. Sensitivity. Now, this is a gift that Jesus has given you, which demonstrates that you belong to him. Verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice. And we've already seen in earlier verses that when the call of salvation came to you, you heard the voice of the good shepherd. You responded in faith because you could hear him. You had believed in him. But the hearing of the voice of Christ, this has never stopped for you. This, this wasn't a one-time thing. You've been hearing his voice ever since. One of the hallmarks of a genuine, brand-new believer in Christ is a sudden, inexplicable urge and desire for the Bible. What Romans 10, 17 calls the word of Christ. And if you've been in Christ for a long time and you've known someone who's disinterested in the Lord, disinterested in the church, disinterested in salvation, and all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they start reading their Bible like there's no tomorrow, we just smile because we know what's happened. They've heard the voice of the shepherd. They've heard his voice. Why is it that when you hear a psalm read aloud, you have a sense of the eternal. Why is it that when we hear Genesis chapter 1, you get chills to think of God's creative power? Why is it that the doctrine presented in the New Testament epistles seems endless in its depth and in its richness? Why is it that the stories of Israel in the Old Testament as the precursor of Christ, these never cease to enthrall you? Why does Proverbs make you think and chew on the wisdom of God and convict your heart of all the ways you're not living a godly life? Why does Song of Solomon thrill the heart and encourage obedience and marital love? Why is it that the Gospels which present to us the revealed Christ feel like we're sitting on the sidelines and watching Jesus in person? Why does the book of Revelation make you long for the consummation of all things and long to be with the Lord? 
It's because the sheep hear his voice. You've been hearing from him your whole saved life. You're like the men on the road to Emmaus who were speaking with the resurrected Jesus but didn't recognize him because he didn't allow them to. And yet later they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he walked with us, talked with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. They were, they were amazed that even when we do, didn't know who he was, when we heard the voice of the Savior, there was something in us that was just alive. This, this word for burned within us, it's the, it's the same idea as lighting a candle, as creating a spark. There was something going on. You have a sensitivity to the voice of Christ as presented in the scriptures. And this isn't some mystical New Age-like ethereal presence, as Sarah Young puts it. It is the spirit of the risen Christ dwelling in you, testifying to the word of God and teaching you and comforting you and growing you in the Lord. If you love God's word, if you yearn for his truth, I would encourage you to take comfort in this. That is a sign, a certain sign of salvation because you hear the shepherd's voice. There's a third assurance We might call it serenity. Serenity. In verse 27, Jesus also says of his sheep, I know them. I know them. This isn't just the sovereign knowledge that God has of all people. This is personal knowledge. This is relational knowledge. This is family knowledge. Jesus has identified you as one of his people, as one who belongs to him, who is is in his fold, in his family. Romans 8.29 calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. It's a word that means kinsmen or family. It can even include sisters. Jesus said to his disciples of the, the deepening relationship that they had with him. In John 15, he said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Have you ever been invited to, to a gathering that doesn't have a lot of people you know and you get there and what's the first thing you're, you're looking for? You're looking for somebody you know and you're looking for the host to make eye contact with you and smile and say, welcome. If you got there and the host looked at you like, what are you doing here? You'd just turn right around and leave. But when you're welcomed, the feeling of anxiety is replaced now by the feeling of what? Of peace, of serenity. Your Savior knows you. You are his brother. You are his sister. You are his friend. There's such a serenity and a contentment associated with that knowledge. The father of the prodigal son in Luke 15 represents Christ the Savior, and he's, he's presented as, as running out to the field to meet his wayward, returning, lost son. We often speak of longing for and thinking about and looking forward to heaven so that we can see Christ. But could I remind us that in his perfect love for you and his perfect desire and commitment to you, Christ is much more eager to be with you even that you are to be with him. Right now, heaven is preparing a banquet just to welcome you home. Do you realize that? In fact, Jesus continually refers to the reunion of his people as a banquet Luke 13, 29, people come, will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus presents himself, are you ready for this, 
as the host who will serve you at the banquet. I can't even wrap my mind around that. And why are you invited? Because Jesus knows you. You're in the fold. You're in the family. You're in the kingdom. That should make for serenity. That should make for peace. He gives a fourth assurance. We might call it submission. Submission. In verse 27, Jesus also says of his sheep that they follow me. They follow me. This is precisely how Jesus describes the true believer. In Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what a believer does. The word follow here is frequently used in the New Testament and in extra-biblical literature to speak of soldiers. It's used to speak of slaves. It's used to speak of students. In other words, a follower is someone who goes wherever the master goes. In fact, it's derived from a word that just means a road or a way, meaning you walk on the same road as your leader. Whatever road he walks on, you always follow him. And this is the only road you want to be on. Now, to be honest, it's not an easy road. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's a road that has road signs all over it. It has road signs like forgive one another, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. It has road signs that says, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. It has road signs that says, wives, submit to your husbands. It has road signs that says, children, obey your parents. These are not easy road signs. It includes signs that say, serve Christ, give to Christ for the sake of Christ. It's a road which demands that you deny yourself and obey the word of God. But although sometimes you find the road difficult, you would never want to be on a different one because it's the only one. In your heart of hearts, you want to obey the Lord. You desire to follow after him, to do all that he has commanded. There's no real Christian who reads Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you, and then says, not today, buster. A real Christian doesn't say that. No real Christian hears 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And then says, I don't think so. Real Christians don't say that. Real Christians are convicted and say, I want to walk on this road. I want to obey the road signs. Now, you won't obey perfectly, but you wish you would. You ever been driving down the freeway and you miss that exit? And if you're in L.A. County, that means you're going to drive 200 more miles before you can get turned around again. You want to be on the right road. You desire to. You know, when we do counseling, it's a really simple question. Do you want to obey Christ or not? The concern is not so much, are you doing it perfectly, but do you want to? You can take comfort in your salvation because as a true believer in Christ, it is your desire to follow him. It's your desire to go wherever he goes, to walk whatever road he's on and follow the road signs all the way. Your desire to be submissive to Christ is indicative of your position as sheep. So that's comforting to us. There's a fifth assurance, and we'll call this one say-so. Say-so. There's a simple question that we ask about who gets to make a decision. Who gets the say-so? Who makes the call? With whom does the buck stop? Verse 28 tells us, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. And this is amazing. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ can hand out entrance tickets to heaven at will. He can do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. All we can do is point people to the one who can. The gates of heaven are his to open and they are his to close. And for his sheep, he has opened them. Jesus told the thief on the cross that on that very day they would be together in paradise. He has the say-so. Jesus taught in Matthew 25 that when he returns, he will hand out eternal life to some and deny it to others. He has the say-so. In 1 John 5, 11 and 12, the apostle John says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Why? Because he has the say-so. He has it all. And the fact that Jesus has the say-so about your eternal life, what does this mean for you? It means that when your body dies, Jesus will finish the work that he began of giving you eternal life in a glorified body in which to enjoy him and his kingdom forever. He asserted his authority to do this, and he's promised that he would accomplish this task. He said in John six thirty nine, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Not one. The old hymn, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, is perfectly true. One of my favorite movies is kind of a, a classic cheesy movie, which I like that kind, called Guarding Tess. Guarding Tess stars Nicolas Cage as a secret service agent, and he's assigned to protect the widow of a former president. And this woman is difficult and mean and nasty. It is like the worst assignment. It's what you get if, if the director of the Secret Service hates your guts. This is who you get to guard. And so the agent, Nicholas Cage, he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to start doing things his way and not her way. And so he's at the house where he's supposed to be guarding her, and the, the phone rings, and one of the other agents says, it's for you. And all of a sudden, you see Nicholas Cage standing at attention, in the kitchen saying, yes, Mr. President, no, Mr. President, absolutely, Mr. President, I'll do whatever you want, Mr. President. And on the other end of the phone, you just hear this yelling and indiscriminate cursing on the other end because the president said, do what I say. And there he is all by himself standing at attention with an old-fashioned corded phone saying, yes, sir, because the highest authority possible has ordered his compliance and he has no choice to obey. Now, what does this mean for you? Jesus said in Matthew 28 that all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, meaning everywhere, has been given to him. And the highest authority possible, Jesus Christ, he has ordered your entrance into heaven. You couldn't disobey that if you tried. Therefore, it will happen because he has the say-so. Now, this does bring up a question, though. You're agreed with that. Christ is agreed with that. But what if someone else? What if someone such as Satan doesn't want you to receive eternal life? Can Christ protect you? Can he keep you from the wickedness in the spiritual realm against which you're totally helpless? You have no power against the spirits of darkness. You have none. Not on your own. So that brings us to a sixth assurance. We might call it safekeeping. Safekeeping. Jesus continues in verse 28 of his sheep. They will never perish. They will never perish. 
First Peter 1.5 says that you are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, what God started in you will be finished. You will persevere in the faith. You will be with the Lord at the moment you're absent from the body. You will experience Psalm 16 verse 11 that promises that at the right hand of God there are pleasures forevermore. You will receive what Paul promised in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that you will always be with the Lord. Those things will definitely happen. Sin will never threaten you again. Time will never run out on you again. You will experience what the Holy Trinity has always experienced, and that is perpetuity and infinity. You will experience this. You will experience what the Psalms say so many times. Psalm 21, you'll have length of days forever and ever. Psalm 45, the nations will praise God forever and ever. Psalm 52, 8, you will trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Psalm 145, verse 1, you will bless the name of your God and King forever and ever. Psalm 119, 44, you will keep the perfect law of God in sinless perfection forever and ever. And this phrase, forever and ever, In Hebrew, it means from horizon to horizon, as far as you could ever see, occurs so many times in relation to you. The book of Micah promises that we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Chapter 4, verse 5, and I love Daniel 7, 18, that says, quote, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever, just to make sure we get it. Your own sin and the sin of others cannot alter the course of your eternal destiny. It can't. The Apostle Paul affirmed this in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Listen, your own death is not a nightmare. It's a dream come true. It is a dream come true. And I love the mature Christian who understands that. And when they get a horrible diagnosis, I have seen this. A giant smile coming on the face. I win. I win. Like a little kid getting ready to go to Disneyland. Christ has guaranteed your safe passage, your safekeeping. Let me give you a seventh assurance. We might just use the key word strength. Strength. Jesus uses a metaphor in verse 28 that we can immediately relate to. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You ever play that game as a little kid where you put a marble in your hand and then all the other kids try and pry it out? Well, if you get enough of them doing it, they can. Or they they play dirty and they bend your little pinky back till it's about to break off and then you let go, right? Not Jesus. And we have to know this because all of these other characters earlier in chapter 10, the enemies of God's sheep... The thieves, the robbers, the strangers, the wolves, none of them can defeat the good shepherd. In fact, this word for to snatch them out of my hand, this is the same word used to speak of the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, that believers who are alive at the time of the resurrection will be caught up, snatched up. Same word together to meet the Lord in the air. And this is important because in that word, there's a sense of suddenness, a sense of surprise. In other words, no one will surprise Jesus. No one will accidentally steal you from his hand. It can't be done. And the verb is a a, a future verb with a negative particle. You don't have to understand that. Just know what that means is, is that never in any time at any point in the future will your salvation be in jeopardy. 
ever. No false teacher can pry the hand of Jesus open. No false doctrine can pry the hand of Jesus open. Your own personal sin can't pry the hand of Jesus open. No doubts, no fears. His hand is clamped tightly around you, and he will not let go. What does the Bible say about the metaphor of the hand of God? Joshua 4, 24, the hand of the Lord is mighty. Psalm 118, 15, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Multiple times, the right hand of the Lord strikes the wicked. That in other words, in, metaphorically, in one hand, God is holding you. With the other one, he's protecting you. The hand of the Lord is like Israel walking through the dry seabed of the Red Sea. And there's, there's danger all around. There's water up there. There's water up there. And yet they're perfectly safe. In fact, the hand of the Lord is so safe, is so certain that the last words of Jesus Christ on the cross before he died were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that in your hand alone I am safe. It's not just that Jesus desires to give you assurance of salvation in your future destination. He has the power to back it up. He has the strength. There's an eighth assurance we might just label selection. Selection. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me. The sheep were pre-selected. We spent a long time talking about that last time. The sheep were pre-selected. They were given to Christ, the son of God. To get away from the doctrine of election, you have to skip John chapter 10. It is all over the place. John 17, verse 2, Jesus affirmed that he will give eternal life to all that the Father, past tense, gave him. We call that the elect. That's what Scripture calls them. Now, God is the greatest accountant in all history. I know some of you are are numbers guys, and when I said the word accountant, you got all excited, and that was a big deal to you. He is the greatest accountant in history. He's numbered everything He's even categorized everything. He's numbered the days of your life, according to Psalm 19, verse 16. He's numbered the sparrows of the air, according to Matthew 10. He's numbered the stars of the universe, according to Psalm 147. By the way, the same Psalm also says that he named all the stars of the universe. He's numbered the sand of the sea in Genesis 32. He's numbered the steps that you take. Genesis 31, if you count your steps, you're considered neurotic. But God has counted them for you. He's numbered the deeds that you do in Job 31. He's numbered the clouds in the sky, according to Job 38. And just to make sure we get the point, he's numbered the hairs of your head, according to Matthew 10. And so to think that God didn't number his sheep, but just going to be surprised at who shows up in heaven, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Why would he count the sand of the seashore and the sparrows of the sky and not count his own people? And this selection is certain. He's not going to miss one. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. You've been guaranteed entrance into heaven. And it is going to happen. There's a ninth assurance we might just call. It's a word you're familiar with. Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Jesus said in verse 29 that his father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch the sheep out of the father's hand. God the Father is greater than all. doesn't just mean he's stronger, although that's true also. It speaks of a a position of greatness. He's higher. He's more lofty. He's more unattainable. 
He's more authoritative. As a matter of fact, when it comes to sovereignty, God is in a category by himself. You can't talk about degrees of sovereignty. Either you are sovereign or you're not. I know that on earth, sometimes kings and queens are called sovereigns, but they have limited sovereignty, so they're not really sovereign. True sovereignty is by definition an attribute singularly of God alone. And so it really becomes a question of who or what is capable of stealing me from God? Who's capable of this? Now, as Pastor Darren read earlier, the Apostle Paul gives a list of potential candidates, potential suspicious candidates. In Romans 8, there could be tribulation. Maybe that would steal you away. It could be distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword or death or life or angels or rulers, things in the present, things yet in the future, powers, heights, depths. And just to make sure he's covered all his bases, anything else in all creation, those are the suspicious characters. But the conclusion is none of those things can pry you out of the Father's hand. Why is that? Well, the Apostle Paul gives a very simple reason in Romans 8, 32, that if God gave up his own son unto death to purchase you for your, purchase your salvation, why would he ever give you up? It cost him too much. And we have a very simple conclusion to, to these facts in Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no enemy that can even come close. I was raised in a spiritual system that, that sort of pictured God and Satan in this eternal battle, and it was going to be a photo finish at the end, and we all sort of believed God was going to win, but it was a real nail-biter. That's not the case at all. Satan is one more little tiny pawn that God just flicks around and does what he wants with for his own purposes. What enemy can threaten to open the hand of God to steal you away? There is none. It doesn't exist. Here's a tenth assurance we might call solidarity. Solidarity. In verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, we're meant to have an understanding of what has come before in the Gospel of John in order to help us understand what Jesus is saying here and properly interpret this phrase here. And there is a depth of profundity to this that in some great degree really defies understanding. But we do have some grasp. Jesus is not erasing the distinction between God the Father and God the Son. Obviously, that can't be the case. But we do have some clues and we have some hints that help us understand. In the first verse of John's gospel, it declares that Jesus is God. He is the Word made flesh. Jesus said in John eight fifty eight that he is the I am. He is the great I am. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He calls his father God, and he calls God his father, which even the Jewish leaders who were against him, they knew in chapter 5 that this was calling himself equal to God. And so we have enough information in John's gospel to this point to understand verse 30, and certainly we get even more information later on in the gospel in John twelve forty one. This confirms that the glorious vision of the throne of God in heaven as seen in Isaiah chapter 6 with this amazing vision of God is actually Isaiah seeing Christ. John 14 verse 8, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. John 14 verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So we have plenty of evidence in John's gospel alone of the unity and the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. But in this context, 
this statement by Jesus, I and the Father are one, it's functional in nature. It's related to will, meaning the will of the Father and the will of the Son are in unity. They're in complete agreement. They're in complete harmony in regard to what is to be done with the elect. And here is the agreement. We will not lose one of them. So, theoretically, it is possible for you to lose your salvation just as soon as God the Father and God the Son disagree about something. You understand how important it is that God the Father and God the Son are in agreement? They will never disagree, and since they have agreed that they will not lose one of you, that that guarantees your salvation. And just in case you want further assurance, the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, He's in full agreement. He's sealed your salvation permanently, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He is, quote, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So now you have to take this to another exponential degree that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit must all get in an argument for the first and only time in all of eternity for you to lose your salvation. That gives me confidence because that's never going to happen. So, We have 10 assurances from the voice of our mighty defender, Jesus Christ. Skills, sensitivity, serenity, submission, say-so, safekeeping, strength, selection, solidarity, sovereignty rather, and solidarity. Why is it that you can be so certain? And I wanted to just walk phrase by phrase through this to see that, that Jesus Christ is giving you all the certainty that you need, all the assurance that you need. But why is it that you are so certain? When we talked about selection, I explained to you that God is the greatest accountant in the universe. He numbers everything. But did you know in the Bible that there is one thing that he has stopped numbering? He has stopped numbering your sins. Romans 4, 7 and 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And listen to this. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Meaning, he doesn't count them. He moves them as far as the east is from the west. He does not keep a record. And so here Jesus is in the wintertime teaching in this protected covering of of Solomon's porch, ironically telling off the Jewish leaders who hate him while giving us one of the greatest passages on the perseverance of the saints and assurance of salvation in all of the Bible. In fact, it was on this exact same spot just a few months later after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ after Pentecost and after the inauguration of the the great church in Jerusalem. It was on this same spot that the Apostle Peter preached to crowds right after having healed a lame man. He preached Christ crucified and resurrected and he concluded his message by saying that God was, quote, offering to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness as recorded in Acts 3 and Acts 5, records that the entire Jerusalem church would meet at Solomon's porch. And verse 14 proclaims, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Why? Because Jesus had already promised in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The fake Jesus of Jesus' calling promises to give momentary peace that you have to collect day after day. You have to regain 
the Jesus of the Bible has given you permanent peace, security, assurance, safety, which has already begun and will last into eternity. And for these reasons, we bless Christ, we thank Christ, we honor him, and we worship him. He is the true living God. These are words literally to cling to to the end of your life. So cling on, hang on to them. Our Father, we thank you for the assurance of salvation. I thank you for our mighty defender. We even sang this morning of Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the commander of the Lord's host. He is so mighty. He is so strong. He is so righteously indignant against any who would come against his people. And he has taken hold of us and he will not let go we have been found wanting in our sin and yet he has replaced our sin with his righteousness and because of that he has now guaranteed our entrance into the heavenly kingdom into the future millennial kingdom into the final state into the final kingdom and for that we give you honor and glory Oh, Lord, thank you for not leaving us to guess, not leaving us to wonder. Thank you for the fact that our last breath on this earth is not a nightmare, but a dream come true. Thank you that we can smile every day of our lives because Christ is guaranteed to defend us. And he literally defended us to the death. And he purchased our salvation. But Lord, we also have a concern for those who would believe in a false assurance of salvation, believe that because one, once upon a time they made a profession of faith or once upon a time checked a card or, or knelt at an altar or prayed a prayer, that now they have assurance. They have, they have no such assurance. Assurance comes by faith, and faith is demonstrated by obedience, desire to follow, a desire to hear the voice of Christ. And so we would pray for any who are under the illusion of a false assurance that you would convict them of their sin and terrify them of their own fallenness, terrify them of the prospect of a surprised eternity in hell so that, in fact, they might turn to the Savior and receive full, true, real assurance as promised in John 10. We thank you and we praise you for our good shepherd, our mighty defender, Lord Sabaoth, his name whose name we pray. Amen.